This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. Letters to Thomas Pennant, numbers 23 to 31. Letter 23 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, January the 28th, 1769. Dear Sir, it is not improbable that the Guernsey lizard and our green lizard may be specifically the same. All that I know is that when, some years ago, many Guernsey lizards were turned loose in Pembroke College Garden in the University of Oxford, they lived a great while and seemed to enjoy themselves very well, but never bred. Whether this circumstance will prove anything either way I shall not pretend to say. I return you thanks for your account of Cressy Hall, but recollect, not without regret, that in June 1746 I was visiting for a week together at Spalding, without ever being told that such a curiosity was just at hand. Pray send me word in your next what sort of tree it is that contains such a quantity of heron's nests, and whether the heronry consists of a whole grove or wood, or only of a few trees. It gave me satisfaction to find that we accorded so well about the Caprimulgus. All I contended for was to prove that it often chatters sitting as well as flying, and therefore the noise was voluntary, and from organic impulse, and not from the resistance of the air against the hollow of its mouth and throat. If ever I saw anything like actual migration, it was last Michaelmas day. I was travelling, and out early in the morning. At first there was a vast fog, but by the time that I was got seven or eight miles from home towards the coast, the sun broke out into a delicate, warm day. We were then on a large heath or common, and I could discern, as the mist began to break away, great numbers of swallows, hirundines rustici, clustering on the stunted shrubs and bushes, as if they had roosted there all night. As soon as the air became clear and pleasant, they were all on the wing at once, and by a placid and easy flight proceeded on southward towards the sea. After this I did not see any more flocks, only now and then a straggler. I cannot agree with those persons that assert that the swallow kind disappear some, and some gradually as they come, for the bulk of them seem to withdraw at once. Only some stragglers stay behind a long while, and do never, there is the greatest reason to believe, leave this island. Swallows seem to lay themselves up, and to come forth in a warm day, as bats do continually of a warm evening, after they have disappeared for weeks. For a very respectable gentleman assured me that, as he was walking with some friends under Merton Wall on a remarkably hot noon, either in the last week in December or the first week in January, he espied three or four swallows huddled together on the moulding of one of the windows of that college. I have frequently remarked that swallows are seen later at Oxford than elsewhere. Is it owing to the vast massy buildings of that place, to the many waters around it, or to what else? When I used to rise in a morning last autumn, and see the swallows and martins clustering on the chimneys and thatch of the neighbouring cottages, I could not help being touched with a secret delight, mixed with some degree of mortification, with delight to observe with how much ardour and punctuality 
those poor little birds obeyed the strong impulse towards migration or hiding imprinted on their minds by their great creator and with some degree of mortification when i reflected that after all our pains and inquiries we are yet not quite certain to what regions they do migrate and are still farther embarrassed to find that some do not actually migrate at all these reflections made so strong an impression on my imagination that they became productive of a composition that may perhaps amuse you for a quarter of an hour when next i have the honour of writing to you letter twenty four to thomas pennant esq selborne may the twenty ninth seventeen sixty nine dear sir the scarabaeus fullo i know very well having seen it in collections but have never been able to discover one wild in its natural state. Mr. Banks told me he thought it might be found on the sea-coast. On the 13th of April I went to the Sheepdown, where the ring-oozels have been observed to make their appearance at spring and fall, in their way perhaps to the north or south, and was much pleased to see three birds about the usual spot. We shot a cock and a hen. They were plump and in high condition. The hen had but very small rudiments of eggs within her, which proves they are late breeders, whereas those species of the thrush kind that remain with us the whole year have fledged young before that time. In their crops was nothing very distinguishable, but somewhat that seemed like blades of vegetables nearly digested. In autumn they feed on haws and yew-berries, and in the spring on ivy-berries. I dressed one of these birds and found it juicy and well-flavoured, it is remarkable that they make but a few days' stay in their spring visit, but rest near a fortnight at Michaelmas. These birds, from the observations of three springs and two autumns, are most punctual in their return, and exhibit a new migration, unnoticed by the writers who supposed they never were to be seen in any of the southern counties. One of my neighbours lately brought me a new salicaria, which at first I suspected might have proved your willow-lark, but on a nicer examination it answered much better to the description of that species which you shot at Reevesby in Lincolnshire. Note. For this salicaria, see letter, August the 30th, 1769. End note. My bird I describe thus. It is a size less than the grasshopper-lark, the head, back, and coverts of the wings of a dusky brown, without those dark spots of the grasshopper-lark. Over each eye is a milk-white stroke, the chin and throat are white, and the underparts of a yellowish-white. The rump is tawny, and the feathers of the tail sharp-pointed. The bill is dusky and sharp, and the legs are dusky, the hinder-claw long and crooked. The person that shot it says that it sung so like a reed-sparrow that he took it for one, and that it sings all night but this account merits further inquiry. For my part, I suspect it is a second sort of Locustella, hinted at by Dr. Durham in Ray's letters. See page 108. He also procured me a grasshopper lark. The question that you put with regard to those genera of animals that are peculiar to America, viz. how they came there, and whence, is too puzzling for me to answer, and yet so obvious as often to have struck me with wonder. If one looks into the writers on that subject, little satisfaction is to be found. Ingenious men will readily advance plausible arguments to support whatever theory they shall choose to maintain. But then, the misfortune is, 
everyone's hypothesis is each as good as another's, since they are all founded on conjecture. The late writers of this sort, in whom may be seen all the arguments of those that have gone before, as I remember, stock America from the western coast of Africa and the south of Europe, and then break down the isthmus that bridged over the Atlantic. But this is making use of a violent piece of machinery. It is a difficulty worthy of the interposition of a god. Incredulous Odi. Reader's Note I dislike this. I refuse to believe it. End note. To Thomas Pennant, Esquire. The Naturalist's Summer Evening Walk. Equidem credo quia sit divinitus illus ingenium. Reader's Note. Latin quote from Virgil. End Reader's Note. When day declining sheds a milder gleam, What time the mayfly haunts the pool or stream? When the still owl skims round the grassy mead, What time the timorous hare limps forth to feed? Then be the time to steal adown the vale, And listen to the vagrant cuckoo's tale, To hear the clamorous curlew call his mate, Or the soft quail his tender pain relate. To see the swallow sweep the darkening plain, Belated, to support her infant train, To mark the swift, in rapid giddy ring, Dash round the steeple, unsubdued of wing. Amusive birds, say where your hid retreat, When the frost rages and the tempests beat, Whence your return, by such nice instincts led, When spring's soft season lifts her bloomy head. Such baffled searches mock man's prying pride. The god of nature is your secret guide. While deepening shades obscure the face of day, To yonder bench leaf-sheltered let us stray, Till blended objects fail the swimming sight, And all the fading landscape sinks in night. To hear the drowsy door come brushing by, With buzzing wing, or the shrill cricket cry, To see the feeding bat glance through the wood, to catch the distant falling of the flood, while o'er the cliff the awakened churn-owl, hung through the still gloom, protracts his chattering song, while high in air and poised upon his wings, unseen, the soft enamoured woodlark sings. These nature's works the curious mind employ, inspire a soothing melancholy joy. As fancy warms, a pleasing kind of pain Steals o'er the cheek, and thrills the creeping vein. Each rural sight, each sound, each smell combine, The tinkling sheep-bell, or the breath of kine, The new-mown hay that scents the swelling breeze, Or cottage chimney smoking through the trees, The chilling night-dews fall, away, retire, For see, the glow-worm lights her amorous fire, Thus, ere night's veil had half obscured the sky, the impatient damsel hung her lamp on high, true to the signal by love's meteor led, Leander hastened to his hero's bed. I am, etc. Letter 25 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, August the 30th, 1769. Dear Sir, it gives me satisfaction to find that my account of the oozel migration pleases you. You put a very shrewd question when you ask me how I know that their autumn migration is southward. Was not candour and openness the very life of natural history? 
I should pass over this query just as the sly commentator does over a crabbed passage in a classic, but common ingenuousness obliges me to confess, not without some degree of shame, that I only reasoned in that case from analogy, for as all other autumnal birds migrate from the northward to us, to partake of our milder winters, and return to the northward again when the rigorous cold abates, so I concluded that the ring-oozels did the same, as well as their congeners the field-fares, and especially as ring-oozels are known to haunt cold mountainous countries. But I have good reason to suspect since that they may come to us from westward, because I hear from very good authority that they breed on Dartmoor, and that they forsake that wild district about the time that our visitors appear, and do not return till late in the spring. I have taken a great deal of pains about your salicaria and mine, with a white stroke over its eye, and a tawny rump. I have surveyed it alive and dead, and have procured several specimens, and am perfectly persuaded myself, and trust you will soon be convinced of the same, that it is no more or less than the Passa arundinaceus minor of Ray. This bird, by some means or other, seems to be entirely omitted in the British zoology, and one reason, probably, was because it is so strangely classed in Ray, who ranges it among his Picis affines. It ought, no doubt, to have gone among his aviculae corda unicolore, and among your slender-billed small birds of the same division. Linnaeus might, with great propriety, have put it into his genus of Motocilla, and the Motocilla salicaria of his fauna suecica seems to come the nearest to it. It is no uncommon bird, haunting the sides of ponds and rivers where there is covert, and the reeds and sedges of moors. The country people in some places call it the sedge-bird. It sings incessantly night and day during the breeding-time, imitating the note of a sparrow, a swallow, a skylark, and has a strange hurrying manner in its song. My specimens correspond most minutely to the description of your fen salicaria, shot near Reevesby. Mr. Ray has given an excellent characteristic of it when he says, Rostrum et pedes in hacavicula multo majores sunt quam pro corporis ratione. Reader's note. This bird's beak and feet are very much larger in relation to its body. End note. See letter, May twenty-ninth, seventeen sixty-nine. I have got you the egg of an edicnemus, or stone curlew, which was picked up in a fallow on the naked ground. There were two, but the finder inadvertently crushed one with his foot before he saw them. When I wrote to you last year on reptiles, I wish I had not forgot to mention the faculty that snakes have of stinking, say defendendo. I knew a gentleman who kept a tame snake which was in its person as sweet as any animal while in a good humour and unalarmed, but as soon as a stranger, or a dog or cat, came in, it fell to hissing, and filled the room with such nauseous effluvia as rendered it hardly supportable. Thus the squunk, or stonk, of Ray's sinop quadr is an innocuous and sweet animal, but when pressed hard by dogs and men, it can eject such a pestilent and fetid smell and excrement that nothing can be more horrible. A gentleman sent me lately a fine specimen of the Lanius minus Kinarassens cum macula in scapulis alba rei, which is a bird that, at the time of your publishing your first two volumes of British Zoology, I find you had not seen. You have described it well from Edward's drawing. Letter 26 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, December the 8th, 1769. Dear Sir, 
I was much gratified by your communicative letter on your return from Scotland, where you spent, I find, some considerable time, and gave yourself good room to examine the natural curiosities of that extensive kingdom, both those of the islands as well as those of the highlands. The usual bane of such expeditions is hurry, because men seldom allot themselves half the time they should do, but fixing a day for their return, post from place to place, rather as if they were on a journey that required dispatch than as philosophers investigating the works of nature. You must have made, no doubt, many discoveries, and laid up a good fund of materials for a future edition of the British Zoology, and will have no reason to repent that you have bestowed so much pains on a part of Great Britain that perhaps was never so well examined before. It has always been matter of wonder to me that field fairs, which are so congenerous to thrushes and blackbirds, should never choose to breed in England, but that they should not think even the highlands, cold and northerly and sequestered enough, is a circumstance still more strange and wonderful. The ring ousel, you find, stays in Scotland the whole year round, so that we have reason to conclude that those migrators that visit us for a short space every autumn do not come from thence. And here, I think, will be the proper place to mention that those birds were most punctual again in their migration this autumn, appearing as before about the 30th of September. But their flocks were larger than common, and their stay protracted somewhat beyond the usual time. If they came to spend the whole winter with us, as some of their congeners do, and then left us, as they do, in spring, I should not be so much struck with the occurrence, since it would be similar to that of the other winter birds of passage. But when I see them for a fortnight at Michaelmas, and again for about a week in the middle of April, I am seized with wonder, and long to be informed whence these travellers come, and whither they go, since they seem to use our hills merely as an inn or baiting-place. Your account of the greater brambling or snowfleck is very amusing, and strange it is that such a short-winged bird should delight in such perilous voyages over the northern ocean. Some country people in the winter-time have every now and then told me that they have seen two or three white larks on our downs, but on considering the matter I begin to suspect that these are some stragglers of the birds we are talking of, which sometimes perhaps may rove so far to the southward. It pleases me to find that white hares are so frequent on the Scottish mountains, and especially as you inform me that it is a distinct species, for the quadrupeds of Britain are so few that every new species is a great acquisition. The eagle-owl, could it be proved to belong to us, is so majestic a bird that it would grace our fauna much. I never was informed before where wild geese are known to breed. You admit, I find, that I have proved your fen salicaria to be the lesser reed-sparrow of Ray, and I think that you may be secure that I am right, for I took very particular pains to clear up that matter, and had some fair specimens, but as they were not well preserved they are decayed already. You will no doubt insert it in its proper place in your next edition. Your additional plates will much improve your work. De Buffon, I know, has described the water shrew-mouse, but still I am pleased to find you have discovered it in Lincolnshire, for the reason I have given in the article on the white hair. As a neighbour was lately ploughing in a dry chalky field, far removed from any water, he turned out a water-rat that was curiously laid up in an hibernaculum artificially formed of grass and leaves. At one end of the burrow lay above a gallon of potatoes regularly stowed, on which it was to have supported itself for the winter. But the difficulty with me is how this amphibious mus 
came to fix its winter station at such a distance from the water? Was it determined in its choice of that place by the mere accident of finding the potatoes, which were planted there, or is it the constant practice of the aquatic rat to forsake the neighbourhood of the water in the colder months? Though I delight very little in analogous reasoning, knowing how fallacious it is with respect to natural history, yet in the following instance I cannot help being inclined to think that it may conduce towards the explanation of a difficulty that I have mentioned before, with respect to the invariable early retreat of the Hirundo apus, or swift, so many weeks before its congeners, and that, not only with us, but also in Andalusia, where they also begin to retire about the beginning of August. The great large bat, which, by the by, is at present a nondescript in England, and what I have never been able yet to procure, retires and migrates very early in the summer. It also ranges very high for its food, feeding in a different region of the air, and that is the reason I never could procure one. Now this is exactly the case with the swifts, for they take their food in a more exalted region than the other species, and are very seldom seen hawking for flies near the ground, or over the surface of the water. From hence I would conclude that these hirundines and the larger bats are supported by some sorts of high-flying gnats, scarabs, or phalaenae, that are of short continuance, and that the short stay of these strangers is regulated by the defect of their food. Note. The little bat appears almost every month in the year, but I have never seen the large ones till the end of April, nor after July. They are most common in June, but never in any plenty, are a rare species with us. End note. By my journal it appears that curlews clamoured on to October the 31st, since which I have not seen or heard any. Swallows were observed on to November the 3rd. Letter 27 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire, Selborne, February the 22nd, 1770. Dear Sir, Hedgehogs abound in my gardens and fields. The manner in which they eat the roots of the plantain in my grass-walks is very curious. With their upper mandible, which is much longer than their lower, they bore under the plant, and so eat the root off, upwards, leaving the tuft of leaves untouched. In this respect they are serviceable, as they destroy a very troublesome weed, but they deface the walks in some measure by digging little round holes. It appears, by the dung that they drop upon the turf, that beetles are no inconsiderable part of their food. In June last I procured a litter of four or five young hedgehogs, which appeared to be about five or six days old. They, I find, like puppies, are born blind, and could not see when they came to my hands. No doubt their spines are soft and flexible at the time of their birth, or else the poor dam would have but a bad time of it in the critical moment of parturition. But it is plain that they soon harden, for these little pigs had such stiff prickles on their backs and sides as would easily have fetched blood, had they not been handled with caution. Their spines are quite white at this age, and they have little hanging ears, which I do not remember to be discernible in the old ones. They can in part, at this age, draw their skin down over their faces, but are not able to contract themselves into a ball as they do, for the sake of defence, when full-grown. The reason, I suppose, is because the curious muscle that enables the creature to roll itself up into a ball was not then arrived at its full tone and firmness. Hedgehogs make a deep and warm hibernaculum with leaves and moss, in which they conceal themselves for the winter, but I never could find that they stored in any winter provision, as some quadrupeds certainly do. I have discovered an anecdote with respect to the field-fare, Turidus pilaris, which I think is particular enough. This bird, though it sits on trees in the daytime, 
and procures the greatest part of its food from white-thorn hedges, yea, moreover, builds on very high trees, as may be seen by the fauna suecica, yet always appears with us to roost on the ground. They are seen to come in flocks just before it is dark, and to settle and nestle among the heath on our forest. And besides, the larkers, in dragging their nets by night, frequently catch them in the wheat stubbles, while the bat-fowlers, who take many red-wings in the hedges, never entangle any of the species. Why these birds in the matter of roosting should differ from all their congeners, and from themselves also with respect to their proceedings by day, is a fact for which I am by no means able to account. I have somewhat to inform you of concerning the moose-deer, but in general foreign animals fall seldom in my way. My little intelligence is confined to the narrow sphere of my own observations at home. Letter 28 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire, Selborne, March, 1770 On Michaelmas Day, 1768, I managed to get a sight of the female moose, belonging to the Duke of Richmond, at Goodwood, but was greatly disappointed when I arrived at the spot, to find that it died, after having appeared in a languishing way for some time, on the morning before. However, understanding that it was not stripped, I proceeded to examine this rare quadruped. I found it in an old greenhouse, slung under the belly and chin by ropes, and in a standing posture. But, though it had been dead for so short a time, it was in so putrid a state that the stench was hardly supportable. The grand distinction between this deer and any other species that I have ever met with consisted in the strange length of its legs, on which it was tilted up much in the manner of birds of the Gralet order. I measured it as they do an horse, and found that from the ground to the wither it was just five feet four inches, which height answers exactly to sixteen hands, a growth that few horses arrive at. But then, with this length of legs, its neck was remarkably short, no more than twelve inches, so that by straddling with one foot forward and the other backward it grazed on the plain ground, with the greatest difficulty, between its legs. The ears were vast and lopping, and as long as the neck. The head was about twenty inches long and ass-like, and had such a redundancy of upper lip as I never saw before, with huge nostrils. This lip, travellers say, is esteemed a dainty dish in North America. It is very reasonable to suppose that this animal supports itself chiefly by browsing of trees, and by wading after water-plants, towards which way of livelihood the length of leg and great lip must contribute much. I have read somewhere that it delights in eating the nymphaea, or water-lily. From the forefeet to the belly behind the shoulder it measured three feet and eight inches. The length of the legs before and behind consisted a great deal in the tibia, which was strangely long, but in my haste to get out of the stench I forgot to measure that joint exactly. Its scut seemed to be about an inch long. The colour was a grisly black, the mane about four inches long, the forehoofs were upright and shapely, the hind flat and splayed. The spring before it was only two years old so that most probably it was not then come to its growth. What a vast tall beast must a full-grown stag be! I have been told some arrive at ten feet and a half. This poor creature had at first a female companion of the same species, which died the spring before. In the same garden was a young stag, or red deer, between whom and this moose it was hoped that there might have been a breed, but their inequality of height must have always been a bar to any commerce of the amorous kind. I should have been glad to have examined the teeth, tongue, lips, hoofs, etc., minutely, but the putrefaction precluded all further curiosity. 
This animal, the keeper told me, seemed to enjoy itself best in the extreme frost of the former winter. In the house they showed me the horn of a male moose, which had no front antlers, but only a broad palm with some snags on the edge. The noble owner of the dead moose proposed to make a skeleton of her bones. Please to let me hear if my female moose corresponds with that you saw, and whether you think still that the American moose and European elk are the same creature. I am, with the greatest esteem, etc. Letter 29 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire Selborne, May the 12th, 1770 Dear Sir, Last month we had such a series of cold, turbulent weather, such a constant succession of frost and snow and hail and tempest, that the regular migration or appearance of the summer birds was much interrupted. Some did not show themselves, at least were not heard, till weeks after their usual time, as the black-cap and white-throat, and some have not been heard yet, as the grasshopper-lark and largest willow-wren. As to the fly-catcher, I have not seen it. It is indeed one of the latest, but should appear about this time, and yet amidst all this meteorous strife and war of the elements, two swallows discovered themselves as long ago as the 11th of April, in frost and snow, but they withdrew quickly, and were not visible again for many days. House-martins, which are always more backward than swallows, were not observed till May came in. Among the monogamous birds, several are to be found, after pairing time, single, and of each sex, but whether this state of celibacy is matter of choice, or necessity, is not so easily discoverable. When the house-sparrows deprive my martins of their nests, as soon as I cause one to be shot, the other, be it cock or hen, presently procures a mate, and so for several times following. I have known a dove-house infested by a pair of white owls, which made great havoc among the young pigeons. One of the owls was shot as soon as possible, but the survivor readily found a mate, and the mischief went on. After some time the new pair were both destroyed, and the annoyance ceased. Another instance, I remember, of a sportsman, whose zeal for the increase of his game being greater than his humanity, after pairing time he always shot the cock-bird of every couple of partridges upon his grounds, supposing that the rivalry of many males interrupted the breed. He used to say that though he had widowed the same hen several times, yet he found she was still provided with a fresh paramour that did not take her away from her usual haunt. Again, I knew a lover of setting, an old sportsman, who has often told me that soon after harvest he has frequently taken small coveys of partridges, consisting of cockbirds alone. These he pleasantly used to call old bachelors. There is a propensity belonging to common house-cats that is very remarkable. I mean their violent fondness for fish which appears to be their most favourite food, and yet nature in this instance seems to have planted in them an appetite that, unassisted, they know not how to gratify, for of all quadrupeds cats are the least disposed towards water, and will not, when they can avoid it, deign to wet a foot, much less to plunge into that element. Quadrupeds that prey on fish are amphibious, such as the otter, which by nature is so well formed for diving that it makes great havoc among the inhabitants of the waters. Not supposing that we had any of those beasts in our shadow-brooks, I was much pleased to see a male otter brought to me, weighing twenty-one pounds, that had been shot on the bank of our stream below the priory, where the rivulet divides the parish of Selborne from Hartley Wood. Letter 30 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire Selborne, 
August the 1st, 1770. Dear Sir, the French, I think, in general, are strangely prolix in their natural history. What Linnaeus says with respect to insects holds good in every other branch. Verbositas praetensis seculi, calamitas artis. Reader's Note The present century's verbosity is art's disaster. End note. Pray, how do you approve of Scopoli's new work? As I admire his entomologia, I long to see it. I forgot to mention in my last letter, and had not room to insert in the former, that the male moose, in rutting time, swims from island to island in the lakes and rivers of North America, in pursuit of the females. My friend the chaplain saw one killed in the water as it was on that errand in the river St. Lawrence. It was a monstrous beast, he told me, but he did not take the dimensions. When I was last in town, our friend Mr. Barrington most obligingly carried me to see many curious sights. As you were then writing to him about horns, he carried me to see many strange and wonderful specimens. There is, I remember, at Lord Pembroke's, at Wilton, an horn-room furnished with more than thirty different pairs, but I have not seen that house lately. Mr. Barrington showed me many astonishing collections of stuffed and living birds from all quarters of the world. After I had studied over the latter for a time, I remarked that every species almost that came from distant regions, such as South America, the coast of Guinea, etc., were thick-billed birds of the Loxia and Fringilla genera, and no Motacilli or Musci Capae were to be met with. When I came to consider, the reason was obvious enough, for the hard-billed birds subsist on seeds, which are easily carried on board, while the soft-billed birds, which are supported by worms and insects, or what is a succedaneum for them, fresh raw meat, can meet with neither in long and tedious voyages. It is from this defect of food that our collections, curious as they are, are defective, and we are deprived of some of the most delicate and lively genera. I am, etc. Letter 31 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, September the 14th, 1770. Dear Sir, you saw, I find, the ring oozels again among their native crags, and are farther assured that they continue resident in those cold regions the whole year. From whence, then, do our ring oozels migrate so regularly every September, and make their appearance again, as if in their return, every April? They are more early this year than common, for some were seen at the usual hill on the fourth of this month. An observing Devonshire gentleman tells me that they frequent some parts of Dartmoor and breed there, but leave those haunts about the end of September or beginning of October, and return again about the end of March. Another intelligent person assures me that they breed in great abundance all over the peak of Derby, and are called there Tor Oozles, withdraw in October and November, and return in spring. This information seems to throw some light on my new migration. Gopoli's new work, Annos Primus Historico Naturalis, which I have just procured, has its merits in ascertaining many of the birds of the Tyrol and Carniola. Monographers, come from whence they may, have, I think, fair pretence to challenge some regard and approbation from the lovers of natural history, for as no man can alone investigate all the works of nature, these partial writers may, each in their department, be more accurate in their discoveries and freer from errors than more general writers, and so by degrees may pave the way to an universal correct natural history. Not that Scopoli is so circumstantial and attentive to the life and conversation of his birds as I could wish, 
He advances some false facts, as when he says of the Hirundo Urbica that pulos extra nidum non nutrit. Reader's note. It does not feed its young away from the nest. End note. This assertion I know to be wrong from repeated observations this summer. The house martins do feed their young flying, though it must be acknowledged not so commonly as the house swallow, and the feat is done in so quick a manner as not to be perceptible to indifferent observers. He also advances some, I was going to say, improbable facts, as when he says of the woodcock that pullos rostra portat fugiens ab hoste. Reader's note. It carries its young in its beak when fleeing an enemy. End note. But candour forbids me to say absolutely that any fact is false, because I have never been witness to such a fact. I have only to remark that the long unwieldy bill of the woodcock is perhaps the worst adapted of any among the winged creation for such a feat of natural affection. I am, etc. The end of letters 23 to 31 to Thomas Pennant of Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne.